Hi everyone, my name is Andy Liu. I'm an assistant professor of history at Villanova University, just outside of Philadelphia. This episode is a is a is part one of two of a conversation that features myself, uh, my friend Sheetal Chabria of Connecticut College, author of the book Making the Modern Slum. And our guest is Jairus Banaji, who is a Mumbai-based independent scholar. And the occasion of the conversation is the publication of his latest book called A Brief History of Commercial Capitalism, published last summer with Haymarket Press. Uh, so even though this is the occasion of the conversation, we don't really talk about the new book. Uh, we don't start by talking about the new book. We actually kind of start at the beginning. This is a wide-ranging conversation covering Jairus's life, um, his childhood growing up in the UK and in India, his subsequent education and intellectual and political interests becoming part of the left in the UK, then in India, he made some uh, pretty interesting theoretical interventions in uh, economic or the economic history of the history of capitalism while writing in the 1970s, and then he revisits a lot of these questions in the 2000s. In the 1980s and 90s, in the meantime, he was busy with a lot of organizing and political and labor work um, in India. So this is a long conversation. Uh, it will be cut up into two parts. The second part will come out after this episode. The last thing I want to say is that the transcript for this conversation is available on the website for Borderlines. It's been slightly edited for readability, and Jairus was generous enough to go back and add a lot more references and details and links to the things he talks about. Um, a lot of juicy little uh, new facts, such as uh, he tells us that, for instance, he grew up in Western India attending the same boarding school in the state of Maharashtra as the lead singer of Queen, Freddie Mercury, um, when, he, when he was a child as well. So for more interesting details such as that and others and you know, ideas about 1980s leftist politics in India, uh, check out the interview, uh, the transcript interview on the Borderlands website. Right. Uh, on to Jairus, your work has basically been um, deeply influential for me and I'm sure for Andy as well. Um, I remember reading as a graduate student a bunch of your essays and um, I was particularly struck by the way in which you attended to the history of capitalism in a very long durée. Um, and you had sort of, you were keen to like decenter Eurocentric origin stories. You wanted a non-teleological account. Um, and also I, I read recently read a sort of unpublished, I think, essay of yours in which you talked about these f family firms that um, managed to sort of control Indian Ocean networks and whatnot. Um, so all that stuff was hugely influential for me. And um, probably most importantly was the fact that you parochialized sort of the wage form and wage labor. Um, but in addition to all that, I just wanted to say one more thing, which is what strikes me most about your work is how empirically rich it is. And I sort of use it as a model when I try to think about writing my own histories because you tell deep empirical stories that have huge conceptual implications. Um, so I was just, because of all that and because your work is so sort of heavy, right? I, I was, we were really curious to know what made you do what you do? How did you come to be a historian? Um, what were your influences? Um, why did you take up these kinds of questions? So, um, I mean, I grew up in, in Bombay um, and until my parents decided to emigrate to the UK, which was around 62. 
when I would have been about 12 or 13. So they took me across to, to England and I finished my schooling there in actually uh, a South London working class school, a comprehensive school, um, which was um, <clears throat> a pretty violent school in many ways. I mean, the kids were quite violent. Anyway, I, I went to Oxford. I, I, I think I, I sort of went to Oxford first in, in the Michaelmas term of 65. And I was doing Lit Hum, which includes um, classics, ancient history, and modern philosophy, right? That's it. And it's um, unlike most courses at Oxford, it's a, it's a four-year course. It's broken into, into kind of 12 terms, right? So after the first five terms, you do an exam in classics, and then the rest of the, the courses on history and modern philosophy. So in a sense, those are formative influences because they force you to address sectors which are otherwise studied independently, right? I mean, classics was largely literature. Um, that's Greek and Latin literature. Um, ancient history, I mean, is self-evident what it means. And although it didn't go down to the late, to the late antique period, uh, it usually stopped around the second or third century. And, and then modern philosophy, which I actually found quite repellent in some ways, and that's what turned me to Hegel mm. and sort of Sartre. So in different and contradictory ways, um, each of these subjects were, were formative in a longer term sense. Um, I went back to India in 1972, uh, having been away for approximately 10 years, but those were 10 absolutely crucial years because they they're the years of kind of intellectual transition. Uh, in the meantime, I got married. I've had a daughter as well. So she was about one when we finally left for JNU. And within about two or three months of joining JNU in late 72, we started a political circle in the campus. It was a campus completely dominated by the left party student organizations. That's the SFI and the AISF. Um, and it was a fairly radical place, both politically and intellectually. You could do practically anything you wanted. There was not a trace, not a hint of authoritarianism, except perhaps in the way that some of the left groups reacted to each other. I mean, especially the SFI, which was a very sectarian organization because it was the largest of the student bodies that's affiliated to the CPM. Then in 75, I'm kind of fast forwarding. I, um, shortly before the emergency was declared, uh, my wife and I shifted to Bombay and we bought a flat there. This was after the first oil price shock. So the inflation hadn't picked up in a substantial way and it was easy to buy quite good apartments in Bombay. I mean, we bought a sea facing apartment. I'm still in, in the same place, um, fairly cheap, having got the money from our parents. And so I spent the next um, approximately 10 years working with the unions in Bombay. I, in other words, I abandoned kind of academic work because I was determined not to look for an academic job in India um, for various reasons. And then having worked with the unions in Bombay, um, I decided I needed a break, partly for personal reasons. I'd lost a close friend who, was, who died very young. And so I went back to, first I went back to Europe. In other words, I, I applied uh, at two places, both in Paris and in Amsterdam. And I was admitted at, you know, at the Institute for Social Studies in, in The Hague. And uh, that was to complete a book comparing 
employment conditions in Philips uh, and, and um, Unilever, which are essentially Dutch companies or Anglo-Dutch companies and so on, with, with equivalent conditions in their plants in India. So that, that book was published in 1989. It's called uh, Beyond Multinationalism. Um, and that was based on the research that I and the group I was working with had done you know, at plant level in Bombay. Bombay at that time was a flourishing industrial region, huge, massive labor market area. Um, and we worked closely with the unions and we had no problems gaining access to the plants. I mean, if we wanted to see the shop floor, then the union would take, take us around and management wouldn't object. This wasn't the period of kind of paranoia that later develops in the, in the 80s and, and 90s of you know, managerial paranoia. Um, it was a fairly fluid and open period. So using all the material that we collected over the course of these five to 10 years of working with the unions, I, I wrote, I and my wife Rohini wrote up this material in, in the book. The other thing that I had going simultaneously was a project in Paris at the Maison, that's the Maison de Sciences de l'Homme, to do an anthology uh, of translations of French writings in sociology of Hawaii. Yeah. So this was the more theoretical part of what I was doing in, in The Hague. It was the kind of theoretical complement to that. And in other words, I thought the sociology quiet tradition was the most fertile of the various industrial sociology currents that were around at the time. And of course, remember, while I was working with the unions in Bombay, I was also reading a hell of a lot about industrial relations, trade unionism, um, you know, industrial sociology and so on. You know, I kept those I, I used to type out those notes. I borrow books from my IT library and then type out notes in, in detail. So there was a lot of that kind of work also uh, packed into, into those years. And it was partly that more abstract kind of research into trade unions and, and industrial sociology and industrial relations that made me feel that the French had the most exciting perspective around at the time. In particular, I was quite impressed by Serge Mallet and his writings on the new working class. And I was trying to kind of identify some formation that would be roughly comparable to that in the in the big companies that we were working with and in in Bombay. So beyond multinationalism does contain an argument about the new working class, but it's more nuanced than Malay in the sense that um, the, the sense of new here is broader, sociologically broader than Malay himself tends to uh, understand it as. For Malay, it's largely technologically determined. It's by new, he means workers who are employed in advanced productive sectors, um, technologically advanced productive sectors, such as oil refineries, electronics firms, and so on. Whereas new to me connoted something closer to modern industry as opposed to textiles. So there was that distinction between traditional industries that had been inherited from the 19th century and industries that had essentially grown up with multinational investment in the late 40s and 50s, yeah. Yeah, which were the kind of firms we were working with in Bombay. You and then I had made a third application. I made three applications simultaneously, <laughs> and I was trying to accommodate all of them, which was to go to Oxford to start a DPhil in late Roman history. Oh, wow. he, um, and I was admitted um, on the understanding that I'd be able to come up with the money to pay for the for the course. In other words, to pay for pay the fees towards the DPhil. So I was navigating between these three 
countries and cities and started my my Oxford work sometime late in 86. And that was a thesis which I eventually submitted in 92. Then I stayed on in Britain for a few years and started working on Indian business. Um, and eventually the most serious part of that was a study, a fieldwork based study on corporate governance in large Indian firms, because that was being discussed both internationally and in India, the Confederation of Indian Industry had published recently published its own code of corporate governance and it was such a ridiculous piece of document, you know, like the Indian business, the, the, the Indian capitalist class is very sophisticated about issues like regulation, right? Um, they preempt things. They, they don't want a kind of state regulation of capital. So they, they decide to kind of move into the field and regulate themselves. But of course, it's not it's not self-regulation in the in the sense of the city or in the British sense of self-regulation, which presupposes a whole culture uh, of, of self-regulation. So we started with a critique of a colleague of mine, Gautam Modi, who was later to work with the the only kind of federation of independent unions ever that ever emerged in India. He and I sort of undertook this fieldwork based study study and we conducted something like close to close to 200 interviews with the top end of business private sector, um, including kind of auditors and analysts and so on and so forth. Right. And that was published not so much in a hard hard form, but it's on the net. It was published by Queen Elizabeth House, which is a, one yeah. of the colleges in Oxford. Yeah. So broadly speaking, till the two till the kind of 2000s began, this was the kind of variegated trajectory. It would, if you want to see a pattern in it, it's a kind of interaction between theory and practice in the sense that it, I'm constantly reflect, reflecting, but theoretically reflecting on experiences and actual everyday interactions and the kind of work I've done. Uh, and then at the back of my mind was this idea that I would go back to I would go back to ancient history, but I wouldn't look at the period that I had studied as an undergraduate at Oxford. I would look at the late antique period, and that's what I did in the thesis, which was published in two thousand and one. The first edition was published in two thousand. That's a glaring change in late antiquity. Yeah. But as I say, by the late nineties, my interests were moving back into the contemporary world, um, and it took the form of a study of uh, of these kind of corporate strategies and no longer so much a focus on the plant and on unions as it as it had been in the 80s early 80s but now much more in terms of how capital was reorganizing in india and the kind of rhetoric of corporate governance that was being mouthed and then for most of the for the 2000s i i started I started to work again in a, in a kind of fairly sweeping way on historical subjects and came up with a whole series of essays or articles that were published in Journal of Agrarian Change and Historical Materialism, Journal of Historical Sociology and so on and so forth. Now, those were collected together, many of those were collected together in what was published as uh, Theory as History, right, in 2011, much of that. And a lot of the um, kind of ancient history or late antique work that I'd been doing in the same years was also was also collected together and published by Cambridge in 2016 as a book called Exploring the Economy of Late Antiquity, right? So the, those particular works, 2011, 2016, were simply 
making sure that I wasn't losing the material that I'd already worked on, that in some sense it would be validated by being published. There were simply collections of essays that straddled uh, years and years of research. Yeah. And I think it was sometime maybe after I published Theory as History that I decided what one needed to sort out was this whole issue of the, not so much the origins of capitalism as the history of capitalism, right? Yeah. which is when I started obscurely maybe working on this book on commercial capitalism. Because if you look at theory as history, then there are two chapters in particular that raise the issue of commercial capital. The introductory chapter, um, where there's already a reference to the plantations and, and the fact that they're largely financed from London, uh, you know, by big, big city merchants like uh, Henry Lascelles and so on. Um, and then, of course, the chapter on Islam and, you know, Islam, the Mediterranean and the, and the rise of capitalism. I avoided the word origins of capitalism because this wasn't a substantial cognitive claim. <laughs> it was a, it was a looser, it was a looser agenda, namely the, the kind of the rise of capitalism. Okay, you can see the distinction between talking about the origins of something as, as putatively specific, right, and the rise of something as more flexible and potentially more fertile. So that was the essay where I argue that it made no sense to transplant Marx's strictly methodological remarks in, in capital about the relationship between commercial and industrial capital to a history of capitalism, since, um, you know, it wouldn't allow you to actually construct a history since we didn't have large-scale industry in most of those centuries. Yeah. Whatever your chronological boundaries, um, you're not going to find large-scale industry in Marx's sense in any of those periods. So what were you going to deal with? What sort of history of capitalism were you going to write? Um, and so that, that in some sense was the kind of starting point of, of the idea of a, of merchant capitalism or commercial capitalism as a, as a regime. Yeah. an economic regime with its own kind of uh, features yeah um, so Jairus do you mind if so sure. that I mean that that essay you, you you know from reading through my book that was hugely influ influential for myself and uh, I do want to get to that but if we could just back up for a second I'm actually still curious about what you call the formative decade of the 60s the 70s um, I mean, there's you just you just there's so much you just talked about, but I guess one thing I'm curious about, looking back, is do you think there is a reason you were so interested in these questions of, of labor, um, like and personally, like what was the, what was the trajectory of your family deciding to move to the UK? Um, when you're in the UK, it seems like you learned a, a an amazing collection of of languages, that you use later on. Were you sort of immersing yourself in sort of, um in that academic world uh, in a way that you felt like you were going to be there forever? Uh, like what, because it, what's striking is that you later on, you say you leave the academy consciously. So I'm, yeah. I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, there's so, but, many, so many interesting questions that arise from that decade. Yeah, sure. I mean, politically, the transition comes in the university. You know, when I'm at Oxford in the late 60s, I, uh, I joined one of the far left groups. They, they were called state caps because they characterize Russia as state capitalists. At that time, the, the name of the group was International Socialism. Um, subsequently, a lot of the first generation or early generation of that group would leave when they decided to rebaptize themselves as a party. 
and that happened in the in the mid 70s but by then i had already left britain had i stayed on i would either have been expelled from is because there were faction fights and i was defending the right of people who didn't accept state capitalism to stay in the organization but there was a drive to kind of move them out of the organization right um and i i probably would have been expelled had i stayed on but otherwise if had i not been expelled i would have left in 75 when they decided to call themselves the socialist workers party so politically it was the university that was important and as i said um i was doing a course uh, a discipline that allowed me to move in so many different directions i mean had i wanted to specialize in in literature or some aspect of literature i would i would have stayed with the classics but of the two parts of the litham course it was the second part it was the what's called greats rather than humanity the classics you know it was it was that part which attracted me most because i could read both philosophy and history in that um so politically the crucial thing was that a lot of the far left groups in britain at the time were what we call ouvrierist in other words they were very strongly oriented to working with workers looking for workers in some sense because workers were largely inaccessible so terry eagleton and i for example would leaflet the car factories in cowley early in the morning it was bitterly cold um, and you know like we'd, we'd be there for the first shift in the morning he would drive me to cowley and we'd go together and then we'd stand at each end of the gate and you'd have all these workers zipping into the plant early in the morning on their lambrettas or whatever and it was very hard to but we have to kind of reaching out to them and then they'd grab the leaflet as they were flying past in some ways it was it was quite a an amusing uh, activity needless to say we didn't actually recruit many workers i mean that's just the perennial crisis of the far left in the post war period um but the activity of trying to reach out to workers and communicate politics in some way was again crucial in a, in a formative sense it, it sort of you know it it stayed with me in in the subsequent period so when i went back to india there's a sense in which i i remained not just uh, an anti-stalinist but also a kind of ouvrierist right i carried that that legacy of ouvrierism into india yeah. and it was always the working class in some narrowly defined sense the factory working class which which seemed to attract us um why did you decide to move back to india oh because um i wasn't happy in britain i mean it was kind of culturally and socially it was a climate i i didn't find very congenial <clears throat> um that's partly a reference to racism and so on but but my my wife rohini was also quite keen that we should get back to to the third world quote unquote yeah and india seemed the the logical choice if only because i'd been there as a child and i knew it vaguely so to speak not not really well so actually going to india was quite a culture shock it was you know like trauma, traumatic in some ways because i was going back as an adult as a young adult and um, i saw things that i hadn't been aware of as a child right because i i'd say i'd left by around maybe around 12 and i was going back yeah uh, when i was in my early 20s so yeah. it was a culture shock and the other thing is that i wasn't going back to bombay which which is where i had grown up uh, i was going back to delhi which belongs to a, a kind of north indian culture area which is which in a sense accentuates the culture shock um yeah so 
you know, about the question of uh, how did I become interested in labor, I think it was my association with the far left in, in Britain that created this kind of abiding, abiding interest in workers and so on. Was your, was your family politically active? No, absolutely not. My, my father, actually there is an interesting dimension of biography which reflects itself in my work, which is that uh, my dad worked for Voltas. He was a kind of, well, I don't know whether you'd call him a senior manager in, in Voltas, but uh, Voltas emerged as a merger uh, between ta the Tatas on the one hand, so the task part of it refers to the Tatas, mm -hmm. and Walcott Brothers, which was a Swiss trading company going back to the 1850s, right? Uh, big, big traders in cotton. So the, the combination of these two firms was what was called Voltas, and my father worked, worked in Voltas. My first cousin, who was fairly close to our family, married a, a Welshman who could be called an expat, um, called Davis. And he was the, the head of regional sales for Firestone in, in Bombay at the time. So he handled the whole South Asian region as a market, as an integrated market. Um, and, and so the other memory, vivid memory I have is, a, you know, from my childhood is having the company car pick me up. That's the Firestone company car pick me up for lunch. And then I, I'd lunch at their place and then it, it would drive me back somewhere and so on, drive me back home. I lived in South Bombay, so it was not, not so far from where Firestone was located at the time. Um, so there are these two companies at the back of my head, Voltas on the one hand and Firestone on the other. And in fact, the work I'm currently doing um, partly deals with the rubber, in, rubber industry, the, the paper I'm currently writing, and I'm constantly working on or thinking about or reading about um, Firestone. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I also, by the way, worked on as part of the union research group that we formed. So when I was working with the unions, I had access to the plant through the union, and I also sort of spent time in the dispensary in Firestone looking at their record of accidents uh, because we were doing an issue uh, just on industrial accidents and we got some very rich data from the from the company this was before the Modi's took over Firestone you know Firestone went bust in the 70s basically because of a corporate strategy which which was disastrous they they never kind of adapted to the radial tire in a way that all the other companies did um, they resisted as long as possible, okay? And um, in the end, it, it spelled the rapid extinction of the company. Now, they sold off, Firestone sold off that plant um, and their entire Indian business to the Modi's. So later on, it became Modi Stone. Wow. And internationally, of course, Firestone was taken over by Bridgestone, Japanese company. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I spent, so in a sense, uh, it's a biography with, with kind of, you know, large corporations embedded into it, but experienced as a child, so to speak. I mean, my dad would take me to to the to his to his company, his head office, and and uh, Tony Davis would take me to the Firestone company, and you know, yeah. Um, and so then, in I... a sense, all the work that I was doing on the on the peasantry and on on agrarian issues and so on was also a reflection back to my memories of what the Satara countryside was like because I partly grew up there as well. Um, 
you know, this constant, all the, all the work on the Deccan peasantry that I did in the mid 70s and so on was based on a vivid recollection of the, of the kind of countryside around Pune and Satara. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, all these kind of biographical themes get mixed up, your memory gets mixed up with your agendas or whatever influences your agendas in, 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 in so many ways. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I can, can I ask, Charis, what's the, um, so I'm, I'm just curious, like, how, how, to what do you attribute your moving to the left, if you, you know, I mean, so you have this early story of studying ancient history and being involved in student movements and a labor struggle. Were those connected for you at the time? Or do you think it was your social affiliations that moved you to the left? Or was it what you were studying? And how did you how did you move between, you know, study and labor struggle? Like, what, what was what was the feedback loop between those? Well, it, it couldn't have been my social affiliation since I came from a fairly upper class family, you know, typically South Bombay family, uh, and I didn't pick up any politics directly as a child. I mean, I remember conversations in in the house where even Krishna Menon was provoked, kind of talking paranoia. Um, not so much in my own parents as in their friends and so on, you know, this whole rhetoric of reds under the beds and so on, the idea that that the Congress party under Nehru was being taken over by the communists and that Krishnamayan was the kind of symbol of this, <laughs> it's kind of, in, you know, take internal takeover or entry or whatever. Yeah. So it couldn't have been my social background so much as, as the kind of stuff that I started reading even before I uh, I went to university, I was I was reading a lot of stuff that was in some way, it was a kind of politicization, but it was more cultural than political, if you can see what I mean. I was reading a lot of Rambo, for example. I found Rambo fascinating, the, the, you know, this kind of um, rebellion against, against um, you know, existing kind of society and its, and its norms and so on. So first I read a biography of Rambo. In fact, I read The Day on Fire when I was still in Bombay. So long before I kind of, um, there was a circuit, yeah, I mean, this was a book that we that we had at home. Um, the author was someone called Ullman, James Ramsey Ullman, who also wrote about Michelangelo. So I was very impressed by The Day of Fire because it portrayed, it was a kind of fictionalized account, but on the whole quite faithful to the way Rambo lived his life. Um, so it was more, you know, in, in a sense, it was kind of literature and the kind of stuff I was reading. I was starting to read Sartre again before I actually went to university. So I was attracted to, you know, existentialism, to French poetry. Uh, I hadn't kind of discovered Hegel at that stage. It was only in university as a reaction to my kind of analytical philosophy, which was the course I had to do, that I started going into continental philosophy. And that sort of Hegel, therefore, was a kind of alternative to what I was being taught. Um, so the politicization is kind of, you know, it's 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 in this sense that I'm. Of course, there's the whole context, the conjuncture of student radicalism, the Vietnam War, all of which were profound influences. One, one, you know, third worldism. You couldn't be kind of alien to any of these things. They were all surrounding you. At Oxford, for example, I I ran. Uh, I forget what's called something like tricontinental something something club you know and we had uh, monthly review speakers coming over from the states um so 
broadly speaking, there was this kind of, you know, and Fanon was the other big influence in the late 60s. Uh, one was reading Wretched of the Earth. Um, so these, these kind of complex influences, you know, Sartre, Fanon, the struggle in Vietnam, uh, you know, huge kind of heroic kind of resistance to American imperialism, uh, and then student radicalism, where I became active in in left politics, partly through student radicalism and partly because I joined um, yeah. this far left group I referred to. Do you, do you feel like you're, you've briefly mentioned, you know, this reference to racism, do you feel like your sense of being like sort of racialized in the UK also contributed to the sense of... Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. sure. And in that sense, the, the left was a liberation. It was a kind of, it was an arena where you didn't experience this kind of alienation anymore. Um, it was in school, by the way, that I experienced racism for the first time, of course. Um, just as Adorno says that he experienced fascism for the first time as a school kid, right? It was in, in class that he, in his school class, that he began to discover what fascism, what <laughs> fascists were all about. So likewise, I mean, it was in, in this kind of comprehensive school in, in, in a working class area of London that I, I discovered racism and it was, and it worked, it moved in different directions. It wasn't so much just, you know, white against black or white against Asian and so on. It, it moved in different and complex ways. Um, but as I say, university was a, was a more secular environment. It, it was, it was less, um, less obviously marked by um, racial discourse and racial practices. And of course, the left within university was an even freer kind of space. Sort of, yeah. It was exhilarating. It was exhilarating to be there. Yeah. So I have a question. You mentioned Hegel a few times, and this is something I've been thinking about. So this is a bit of a personal hobby horse, which is, it seems like it's an open-ended question about like what was going on in the 1970s especially for people studying Marx, it seems like there was a real sort of Hegelian revolution. I think I would put yourself in, inside there, but a lot of the people we, who, who, who have kind of become very prominent since then also attribute the sort of discovery of Hegel and the Grundrisse and Lukács um, to kind of their rethinking of Marx. So the people like, you know, Postone, Moise Postone, David Harvey, um, uh, Giovanni Arrighi, Diane Elson, who, who, you know, there's the volume that you're in there, um, Ernest Mandel, right? So I'm curious, you know, I'm, I'm only reading about this, obviously I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there. So I'm just curious, like, what was it like at the time? Was there really a sense of people talking about, we have to rethink what Marxism was or has been up until now, and we have to kind of make it, make it much more, um, you know, open-ended and in your, your, your essays, especially the ones, you know, the modes of production essay or the, the, the Deccan Plateau essay are really difficult, but I think rewarding ultimately, but they, 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 they're this sort of wrestling with the philosophical method of Marx, which um, I think is ultimately very rewarding and helps you understand, it helped, it's, it's helped me understand Marx, I think a lot better. But um, was it unusual at the time what you were doing and how did you come up with that? Like, was it reading groups? Was it you were just kind of sitting alone in your room figuring this stuff out? How did that, how did that happen? Well, there were two things, uh, there are two levels at which one can respond. One is there was a kind of what the new left or the post-war left, if you like, um, was doing was rediscovering uh, a kind of very rich legacy of, of the Marxist past, which 
had never been foregrounded for obvious reasons by the communist parties and the kind of Stalinist tradition, the Stalinist intellectual tradition. So the kind of new left as an anti-Stalinist formation was forced back into looking for, um, you know, these, these traditions, which had not necessarily been very successful earlier. Um, connected to that was the emergence of publishing houses like New Left Books, which I think started publishing around 1972. And New Left Review itself, before it kind of maybe degenerated later on, uh, was publishing very good stuff. Um, a very wide range of continental Marxists. Uh, there was this fantastic interview with Sartre. Um, there was the there was stuff by Coletti and stuff on the um, Della Volpe, etc. So one discovered as part of, if you were a kind of thinking part of the New Left at the time, then you discovered um, traditions of philosophy and sociology within Marxism, um, which weren't, which wouldn't have been so obvious had I just gone and joined the, say, one of the communist parties. Now, Hegel was part of that kind of renaissance, right? Um, not necessarily a very prominent part of it, but certainly Hegel was part of that, partly because of thinkers like Marcuse and so on. But when I went back to India, of course, none of this was there. And I went back with a sense that the left was stagnating and in crisis worldwide. I mean, I don't mean just the left in India, because already in an Ox in Oxford Left, which is a cyclostyle magazine, uh, I and a few others were producing in Oxford in the late 60s. Um, one was writing about the crisis of the left. Yeah. And I remember writing a, a piece called Sartre and the, and the crisis of the left. You know, so an attempt to kind of uh, to connect all these kinds of things together. But certainly by the time I got back to, to India, I, I felt that one had to, if, if the left had any future, it had to think seriously about its own theoretical foundations. Um, you know, how far back these went, how deep they were, how they connected with thinkers like Hegel, etc. So uh, not so much in JNU, where the, where the readings were more political, the circle we formed, the readings were, like, let's say, discussions of the, of the Russian Revolution, right, because, which came as a kind of big eye-opener to a lot of the students that, one, that joined this circle. But in Bombay, after leaving JNU and Delhi, one had a political circle here, which was, um, let's say, philosophically more fluid and open. We continue to discuss things like the Russian Revolution, but now we were opening up into, into the, the sort of stuff that I referred to earlier, you know, Coletti, De La Volpe, etc. So, you know, in the Elson essay, in the in the book, in the Elson book essay, um, there's a constant swiping at Coletti, right? Yeah. Uh, because we read Marxism and what's it called, Marxism and Hegel, um, you know. Um, as part of this political circle in Bombay. So in that sense, New Left Books was, was quite fundamental because it was introducing us to a whole range of literature and of currents within Marxism, which weren't necessarily very popular with the, with the Uberist groups in Britain. I mean, they were so fixated on working with the workers that they completely neglected issues like theory. In fact, theory was, an, was a bad word in, you know, in kind of, in the discourse of the Uberist groups, the theory simply meant maybe reading the manifesto or something yeah. uh, at, at best. Um, why, why do you think it's so important to read theory? I don't think you can you can be political in a in a Marxist sense without having a a, a deep both commitment to commitment to theory as well as an understanding of it. You know, 
Um, I mean, that's the whole point about Marxism, that it's a, simultaneously a theoretical and political formation. It's sort of inextricably linked. Um, just, you know, you call yourself a Marxist, that means you have something to do with Marx's work. The center, the center of Marx's work in many ways is capital. Just understanding the early portions, the early pages of capital requires a whole kind of theoretical formation, which um, you can't just go into the chapter on value or uh, you know the understanding of value without some sense of what lies behind all that. And um, Marx described himself in in one of his later works as a disciple of Hegel. You know, I only discovered that passage recently, but it's an interesting passage. Jesus says, I'm just a disciple of Hegel. Um, cutting through reams of debate about the relationship between Marxism and Hegelianism. And then how did you, was there someone who, or someone or some book that kind of guided you through that? Because I think, you know, when I've tried to read Hegel and Marx, I don't, I'm lost. I need somebody to help me. Was, was there something where you were reading with other people or there was a, there was a, well, we just plunged, we plunged in at the deep end. I mean, we had a, an aeronautical engineer from IIT as part of our circle. And he's the first guy who said, we, we have to read the science of logic. And, you know, Hegel probably published two logics, the minor logic and the big logic, you know, so he actually forced us to start reading the big logic uh, as part of his political circle in Bombay. We called ourselves the platform group. Uh, the platform meant, you know, kind of trying to create a basis for, for revolutionary politics, which, as I say, we thought was stagnating, if not declining in, in the 70s. And this so was we were the working same on the, time. Sorry, oh, this was the same time you were working with the trade unions in Bombay. Yes. This was, this was a, a period which was transitional to full-time work with the unions, right? Because once we started working with the unions, there was very little time to sustain a political circle in Bombay. So I'm talking about a period from the time that we went over to Bombay and we had preliminary contacts with people like Prafun Bidwai, who was already in Bombay at the time, and say the period like 78, 9, which is when we start working on collective agreements, sitting in the Bombay Chamber of Commerce in South Bombay, uh, looking through all the agreements that they have in their kind of steel cabinets, in their Godrich steel cabinets, systematically compiling, a, you know, descriptions of conditions of employment in these large firms. But that, that activity starts in 79. So between 75 and 79, you know, Partly you have the emergency and then you have the post-emergency period. Um, this, as I say, was a was a time of kind of study circles. Um, Praful was part of it. Javed Anand, who, who was married now, now married to Pista Settlewad, was part of that group. Um, Dilip Simeon, who lives in who lives in Delhi. You know, Niladri Bhattacharya, all these people who became known subsequently in one way or another. I mean, Praful, of course, died a few years ago, um, but all of these people who subsequently became known either as well-known journalists or for their anti-communal work uh, or as historians, namely Miladri and Dilip Simeon and so on, uh, and people like Shumit Guha, Shumit is now in the States, um, were all part of this kind of circle, mm -hmm. except that each of the centers that we were present in um, pursued its own kind of study, study agenda. So in Bombay, we were kind of more interested in philosophical questions or philosophy of science. And um, we ran a we ran a cipher style magazine called uh, the Bulletin of the Communist Platform. Um, 
I can't say that it lasted for very long, but it was quite substantial while it lasted. And I published a, a long, published a long essay on, on philosophy of revolutionary practice, it's called, which was an attempt to kind of bring Hegel back into, uh, Hegel back into an understanding of, uh, of practice, of what, what revolutionary practice would mean. That was recently retrieved by Sebastian Budgeon, and then he asked me to clean up the text and that's been put on the HM blog. It's called uh, the thesis on Feuerbach, um, or the second thesis on Feuerbach, and then subtitles are like towards a, a philosophy yeah. of revolutionary practice. And that, that's there on the HM blog. Um, it's a fairly long, it's a very long essay, but from the from the kind of notes, the footnotes to that, you'll see that I was reading widely in philosophy of science at the time, 76, 77. Yeah. About the modes of production essay, I should tell you that that was actually written uh, as a reaction to Anderson in 1974, although it was only published in 77. It was so Benedict, Benedict Anderson, or Perry Sorry. Anderson, Perry Anderson. Perry, Perry Anderson, yeah. The because, Asiatic uh, mode of production essay. Not, not, not that so much as the, as the first two volumes of, um, you know, it was projected yeah. to be a kind of multi-volume work. So... Um, Passages and lineages, the first two volumes, right? Yeah. It was partly a reaction to that, but um, that was written uh, in, in, I typed it out in Bombay, and then I was invited to Dar es Salaam um, around the time as an external examiner. So it, the final form of the essay was, you know, finished off in, in Dar es Salaam. And then it just languished for a while until it was picked up by a capital in class. They said they'd like to publish it. So I said, fine, go ahead. So that was 77. So it was actually written in 74. Now what's crucial to, you know, to the architecture of that particular essay is the distinction between forms of exploitation and relations of production. Yeah. Because that opens up everything. Once, once that distinction is made, you no longer have this crude kind of mechanical mapping of Right. modes of production and relations of production onto some spectrum of relations of exploitation, you know, yeah. um, like feudalism, serfdom, capitalism, wage labor, etc. Once the distinction is established conceptually, there's a hell of a lot that you can do after that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, because I think I, I think that's the fact in my reading, that is like the foundation of understanding everything, all the insights you've come up with since then. Um, and it's such a philosophical, uh, just like overturning of of like the previous understandings of what Marxism was. I, I guess I'm just kind of curious. Like, do you know? Do you remember? Like, what what how you came to that realization that you have to make this distinction? Was it was it because you were looking at the world beyond Western Europe, or was it a philosophical revelation? Or do you kind of remember like what was the inspiration? Because for me, I think I agree. Like that is. That is everything. That that is the theoretical sort of linchpin of so many of these arguments you've made. I mean, I, I think these debates that were going on in in India at the time on the mode of production, where you had people like Parikh Chattopadhyay and Utsapat Naik and, and Ashok Rudra contributing. Um, my dissatisfaction with what was being argued in those debates was driving me towards this particular distinction, but it was the in particular, it was the relationship between, say, uh, moneylenders and peasants, right? Which I was trying to figure out because either you 
somehow kind of just dismiss that as pre-capitalist and then forget about it, so to speak, or you try and integrate it into some understanding of capitalism. And I think it was Rohini who, who was arguing that, you know, that there's a way of seeing merchants' capital extracting surplus value from peasant households. So that's the kind of thing that I, I developed. I mean, she, she's not a historian, so she wasn't developing the idea, but in these internal discussions we were, have, we were having, um, this was the thing that was being argued that actually there's no reason why uh, the relationship between peasants and moneylenders and merchants and so on couldn't be seen as involving the production of surplus value. Um, so that idea, of course, is then then argued in the Deccan Peasantry paper. Um, and this simultaneously, the distinction between relations of production and forms of exploitation is underpinned by Hegel's distinction between essence and appearance. Mm. Um, so Hegel is crucial to that distinction because once you once you distinguish these levels of abstraction, so to speak, yeah, then um, it becomes possible to see what's happening, that capital can be a sort of essential relation, even if the phenomenal forms that you encounter, which are, of course, also conceptually confusing forms, because it's, this is just the kind of chaos of reality, so to speak, that <laughs> Marx talks about. Um, those phenomenal forms are simply that. Uh, what, what matters is your ability to relate them back to some ground or some essence, which would explain them. So, um, yeah, I should say that I, I kind of, I started the Deccan peasantry work. I was working in the archives in Bombay, in the Maharashtra archives in Bombay, and that's where I was going to get getting all my Deccan material from. Um, partly as a requirement for the MPhil in, in the history course in JNU, um, which I never, I never completed because the emergency intervened and I fled from, from Delhi and I relocated. You wrote that essay as a master's student. No, uh, the S that essay was written in 1977, okay. unlike the modes of production one, but it was based on material that I started collecting, thinking that I would do an MPhil dissertation wow. right, on this topic, right? So it was, it was actually meant to be an MPhil to be submitted to JNU, but in the end, they deregistered all students who weren't present in Delhi. So I was automatically deregistered from the campus. And if you wanted to kind of retain your links with JNU, you had to go back and re-register. And I was in no mood to do that because the emergency was uh, in full swing at the time. And I had no intention of going back to Delhi. So, so, um, so you were on the trajectory to become a historian of South Asia. Sorry? Without the emergency, you were on a trajectory to do a master's and perhaps a PhD in South Asian history. Yes, in the sense that I, I, I was already working on South Asian topics under under people like Bipin Chandra and Savyasachi Bhattacharya and Shogata Mukherjee. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the only paper that, I, that was actually published on, on the strength of those kind of university interventions was the one on the Comintern and Indian nationalism. I don't know if you've seen that, but it was published in, in the, something called the International. It was a very long essay on the Comintern and Indian nationalism, actually arguing that, that um, that it was quite wrong to see the Indian bourgeoisie as somehow like an, just a tool, a passive tool of British imperialism. Uh, that you couldn't understand the strength of Indian nationalism if you had that kind of analysis. So it was kind of 
contrary to kind of Maoist, uh, Maoist uh, intellectual constructions of Indian nationalism. That essay was written for Bipin Chandra and it was eventually published in, as I say, in the international. Um, it's called Comintern and Indian Nationalism. And again, it's based on research I was doing in Saku House um, into all the kind of issues of Imprecor. Imprecor was kind of one of the magazines that the Comintern ran. And I was specifically looking for their understanding of Indian nationalism um, in, in, in that. So that was one of the kind of South Asian pieces of research I, I'd done. And the other thing was that I was becoming increasingly interested in agrarian history, which is how the Deccan peasantry interest yeah. emerged. It was essentially a commitment to agrarian history. I should mention that I'd already, before leaving Britain, committed myself to a book on the peasantry. So that's the only time I ever met Perry Anderson. Uh, we sat in the UNEF Review office and uh, I signed a contract with them. And the book was going to be called The Decline of the Peasantry. And it was a kind of long durée argument about why we can't expect the peasantry to survive historically under capitalism. So that contract with NLB was signed in 1972. So when I went back to India, I was largely working on agrarian history at the time uh, and reading widely. Uh, that's where I first read Confino's book on the on the Russian landowners of the 18th century and, and, and began to discover how much more uh, complex and sophisticated agrarian history could be than simply kind of um, pigeonholing classes into kind of feudal and so on and so forth. Um, that, that what Confino was arguing was that the kind of economic rationality that these landowners were displaying, and this is the kind of aristocracy we're talking about, was far more advanced than anything what we could simply characterize as feudal. That there was a sense in which they had models of efficiency of state, man state management, which, you know, the same thing has been argued for the plantation owners that there were models of capitalist efficiency and so on, you know, embedded in the way the plantations were organized and run, etc. So I was quite impressed by Kula's book on, you know, Kula's book on Poland, by Confino's work on Russia. So these are the kind of strands of argument that were drawn into the modes of production paper. Yeah. Um, and I mean, yeah, if I were, if I were asked what what was the most interesting thing you were working on i'd say it was this you know broadly speaking economic history on on one side and uh, agrarian history on the other at the time this is before we became involved with the unions because after that my interest kind of moved dramatically to into the kind of industrial field